0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Job. If you do not have a Bible, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath a chair in front of you. Job is on page 236. As we are going through this sermon series called Root 66, um, we're moving through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book, and today we are transitioning to a different category of books. Um, Most recently, we have been looking at what are called the historical books, the books from Joshua all the way through Esther. Uh, Today, we're transitioning to a different category that is called wisdom books, which would include books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the book we're looking at today, the book of Job. Job is a wisdom book, and it shouldn't be too hard to understand why it would be called a wisdom book, because when it comes to the problem of suffering in our lives, wisdom is something that we all need. When suffering is brought into our lives, we very often are moved to ask a lot of questions, right? Like, why me? Why now? Why not somebody else? And sometimes that can lead us to ask other questions like, does God love me? Does God hate me? Is God even there? And these are big questions, aren't they? (laughs) I mean, these are life changing questions that very often we ask when we're faced with suffering. I know that there are various forms of suffering that people in this congregation today are dealing with. There are persistent illnesses that some of you are dealing with, there are those grieving the loss of loved ones, there are those who are in a state of joblessness and looking for employment. There are people struggling with infertility and loneliness. There are unspoken sources of suffering in your lives, things you're dealing with that you haven't shared with anybody, but your heart is weighed down and you feel like you're suffering. And I want to acknowledge here today that um, it's a whole lot easier to stand up here and talk about suffering than it is for you to actually live through it. I acknowledge that. But the truth is that God has given us the book of Job. There is no other book in the Bible that deals with the topic of suffering as clearly and profoundly as the book of Job. And that's where we are on Route 66. And so we're going to look at this book today. Some background information on Job. Again, we do not know who authored this book um, we're not even sure exactly when it was written. There are different theories about that. Some say that it was written as early as the days of Abraham. Some say it was written during the time of the exiles. There's a lot of years in between the two. Could have been written any time. I, I wonder if the Lord and his providence has set it up that way just so that we will um, apprehend how universal and timeless is the problem of suffering. It can't be pinned to any one culture, or time period, or nation. We all deal with it. Everybody, everywhere, and every time period. Themes, not easy to figure out. Suffering, wisdom, and the problem of evil. Significant events, pretty simple as well. This man named Job, and yes, we do believe he was a real person who lived on this earth, a man named Job, and the conversations that he has with his friends regarding his own suffering. So, we obviously can't cover the entire book of Job, 42 chapters. I'm just going to read the very first chapter, Job chapter 1. If you're able, you could stand now, and I'll read this chapter for us, and we'll see what the Lord has to say us, say to us about suffering. Job chapter 1, verse 1. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, Father, would you please minister comfort to suffering hearts through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we have this man named Job. What happened to Job? Um, The disaster that befell him is laid out pretty clearly for us there at the end of the chapter. Enemies fell upon him and killed his servants and his animals. That would basically be his livelihood. Job lost his livelihood. Uh, a little later on we read that a big storm came, a wind came and blew over a house and in that house were Job's children and the house fell down and Job lost all of his children, all killed in this disaster. Lost his livelihood, lost his children. We didn't read chapter two, but if you go on to chapter two, you'll find that Job also lost his health. He was stricken with an illness and so on top of his livelihood and his family, he loses his health. And so when something like this befalls a person, we are all left with many questions. Why do these kinds of things happen? And so today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the reason for suffering, the response to suffering, and redemption that can be found in suffering. So the first thing is the reason for suffering. The reason, this is what we all want to know, isn't it? As I mentioned a moment ago, very often when suffering happens, we ask the question, why? Why? Why me? Why now? And so there are various questions that we might ask here about Job, and the first one is this. Is God punishing Job? And maybe you've had that question in your own life as you've had to deal with various suffering. Is is God punishing me? Is he getting me back for something? Is he angry at me? And this is the question that we need to ask about Job. And in fact, we're going to learn a little bit more about these three friends of Job. When they come and enter into Job's life, this is their main point. Job, the only reason why you'd be suffering is if you did some kind of a sin. You offended God some way. God doesn't do this to righteous people. God does this to evil people. Job, you've sinned. That's why you're suffering. But is that true? It's very clear just looking here at this first chapter of Job that no, that is not true. Look at the way the chapter opens. Chapter 1, verse 1 there was a man in the end, in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. He feared God, he turned away from evil. Later on, we learn in verse 5. That Job was so concerned about his children and whether they had sinned or not that he would offer up sacrifices on their behalf just in case they'd cursed God in their hearts. That's how much he loved his kids. How much he was concerned about his children's right standing before God. Verse 8. During this conversation that God and Satan have together. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man. He fears God and turns away from evil. I mean, Job is not only a righteous man. He's like one of the most righteous men on earth. So God is not punishing Job for anything wrong that he did. Now, this doesn't mean that Job is sinless. If you have some time later, you can look at chapter 31, verse 33, where Job acknowledges his own transgression But what we're learning here is that the pattern of Job's life is one of righteousness. He he is a man with a heart for righteousness and a heart for God. He's not perfect, but he wants to do the right thing, and often he does. And so what we're learning here is something that might sound kind of startling to you, and that is this, that the reason that Job suffers is not because he's bad, but it's because he's good. God sends suffering into his life, Because God sees a righteous man. Now that doesn't mean that if you're a righteous person, you're going to suffer. But it does mean if you're a righteous person, it doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. And it does mean as you think about the suffering in your life, you can conclude that this is not because God is getting you back for something. It's not because God is punishing you for something you did last week or something you did 20 years ago. Is God punishing Job here? No. The next question we might ask, is God not even there? It's a very common question that people ask in the face of suffering and evil. Back in 2004, there was a tsunami in Indonesia, killed 250,000 people. A tsunami, 250,000 people. And a lot of people were writing articles about this, including somebody in the New York Observer who said this, if God is good, excuse me, if God is God, he's not good, if God is good, he's not God, you can't have it both ways. This is very often what people say. There's no way that a good God and a powerful God can allow evil and suffering to exist in the world. The God of the Bible would not allow that. And since we see evil and suffering in the world, God therefore must not exist, That's the way the thinking goes. Now, we could spend a lot of time kind of responding to that, but for our sake this morning, I just want you to see that that's not how Job responds, is it? I mean, Job could deal with that that way. I I am suffering here. Maybe God doesn't exist. It's completely opposite in Job's life. What does he do? I mean, just one of the most astonishing passages, perhaps, in the entire Bible. Right here at the end of chapter 1, after Job has lost his livelihood and lost his children. He says in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not a man refusing to believe in God. That's a man choosing to worship God. And in fact, that's what it says in the previous verse. 20, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. I understand the temptation to want to entertain the possibility that maybe God doesn't exist when you look out in the world and you see all the evil and the suffering and the tragedy. But I would just ask you this. If you're toying with that idea, just maybe God doesn't exist, let me ask you this. What does that actually solve for you? (laughs) To dismiss God from the picture. Okay, you don't believe in God anymore. Is there still tragedy and suffering? Are there still tsunamis? Do children still get cancer? Do lunatics still walk into public places and shoot people? Of course, yes. By removing God from the picture, you have only done one thing. You've removed any opportunity you have for hope in the midst of your suffering. That's what it does to dismiss God. It doesn't help you. And it didn't help Job. Job chose instead to worship in the midst of his suffering. And then the last thing we might ask is this Is God testing Job? And that seems to be a little closer to what is happening. There's some kind of a test going on, and we know that because of this discussion that takes place in the heavenly realms between God and Satan. In verses um, <clears throat> 10 and 11, in particular, in what Satan says here to God, is this He says, God, you know this, well, first of all, notice that Job, excuse me, notice that God is the one who suggests Job to Satan. Here's a righteous man, and then Satan says to God, here is why Job worships you, God. This is Satan's argument. The reason he worships you is because you've increased his possessions, because you've blessed him, because he has a happy family and lots of possessions. That's why he worships you. But you take away those things, God, he's not gonna worship you anymore. In fact, he'll do quite the opposite. He's gonna curse you. And we know people have done that, right? I mean, they go through suffering, something is lost, and instead of praising God, they don't only deny God's existence, they curse him, they hate God. And all they can talk about is how much they hate God. That's what Satan is saying Job would do If Job's blessings were taken from him. And so, what God says in response is, okay, I'm gonna let you do that, Satan. And so, notice something very interesting here also in verse 12 that Satan can do nothing unless he has God's permission to do it. Satan's gotta go to God. And God is the one who says, you can do it. He says, "Don't, don't take his life, you can't do that. God sets limits. But he does say, Satan, you can do this. So Satan is an immediate cause in some cases of tragedy and disaster. But God is the one who is sovereign over it all. But the test here, the test here is whether Job will praise God or curse God when he goes through suffering. And we know, of course, how Job responds. He chooses to praise God instead. So this is what I would say to you who are dealing with suffering. When you you are going through tragedy and crisis and difficulty, when you're in the midst of suffering and, and you come to a place like this on a Sunday morning, when your faith is razor thin and feeble and when you can barely lift up your voices to sing a song of praise because your heart is broken and yet you come and you do it anyway, and you choose to praise God in the midst of your suffering, do you know what kind of mighty cosmic victory is taking place in that moment? What you're doing is proving Satan to be a fool. You're proving Satan to be a liar. Because what you're saying is, no, God might take things from me, and I might have lots of questions for him right now, and my heart might be really heavy right now, and I might be filled with all sorts of doubt about what's happening, but nonetheless, I will still praise his name. That, that, is, that is a miracle when a person does that. I and mean, we see lots of miracles in the Bible, people getting their, their sight back, people being raised from the dead, but when a sufferer praises God, that is evidence of a powerful work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It doesn't mean you've got a big smile on your face. It doesn't mean that you're saying everything is great when it's not. But it does mean you you choose to worship God because you love him more than the things in your life. And that's what is true of Job. And that's the test that is taking place in his life. So, reason for suffering. The second thing, response to suffering. There are various responses to suffering going on here. One, let's look at Job's response. We've seen that he refuses to curse God. That's true. He praises God instead. But this doesn't mean, friends, that he doesn't express in candid detail his anguish and sorrow. And so starting in chapter 3 all the way through like chapter 37, Job is having this conversation with his friends. And Job is just open about how much his heart is hurting. He says things like this. Chapter 3, verse 11. He says, Why didn't I just die at birth? It would have been better for me to be stillborn. Chapter 3. Chapter 6, he says, You know what would really give me comfort in this life? If I were to die. That would be comfort to me. So Job says, Chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 15. I'd rather be strangled than go through what I'm going through right now. That's what he says. Chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 16. I hate my life. Chapter 10. He says to God, Did you create me for this, God? Is is this why you made me? So that I could grow up and endure this kind of suffering? Now... You who are suffering, you're not surprised that Job would say those things, are you? (laughs) Because you've said those things yourself. And if you haven't said those things, you've thought those things. I'd rather be dead. Why was I born? Why did God bring me into the world for this? Remember, friends, Job is a righteous man. This is a righteous man saying these things. When we look throughout the Psalms, you'll see over and over again, righteous people crying out, saying these kinds of, same kinds of things, these laments, these complaints against God. There is no inconsistency, friends, between a righteous person and someone who can be candid and open in expressing his or her sorrow before God. That doesn't mean that you're sub spiritual. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you if you're pouring out your anguish and sorrow to God. In fact, J.I. Packer says it like this When bad things happen to good people in the Bible, he's talking, they complain with great freedom and at considerable length to their God. And Scripture does not seem to regard these complaining prayers as anything other than wisdom. There is wisdom in being open with God about your sorrows. And that's what Job does. But then we also see the response of Job's friends. And, you know, sometimes the Bible teaches us by good example, and sometimes the Bible teaches us by bad example. And that is the case with Job's friends, Eliphaz, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and later a guy named Elihu who comes along And uh, Job's description for them in chapter 2 is that they are miserable comforters. And comfort actually is a word that is repeated throughout Job. And so that's what Job is looking for. He wants to be comforted. And here comes these friends, and they're seeking to comfort him, and they do a lousy job. And Job is not afraid to say it. And that's the cause for this argument that's going back and forth as the Friends are seeking to comfort him, and the reason they're such miserable comforters is because what they want to do is figure out the problem. They want to find an answer for Job. They want to bring all of their high-minded theology into the situation and solve it for Job. And here's what's interesting is that very often what they say is right, it's correct, it's orthodox. These are people who believe in God. Now, they're wrong when they say, Job, this must be happening to you because you've sinned. They're wrong in that way, but they're right in a lot of other ways. The problem here is they're saying the right things at the wrong time. And, you know, that takes a lot of wisdom, not only to know the right things to say. That's, that's half the job. The other half of the job is knowing the right time to say them. And that's hard. When Job's friends come onto the scene to begin with, it says for like the first seven days, all they did was sit there and weep with Job and they didn't say a word. There they got it right. Because Job says a little later in chapter 13, verse 5, I wish these guys would just be quiet. I wish they'd shut up. They are not helping. And they don't even recognize that, and they keep going. I think I've told you the story before. I have a pastor friend who was counseling somebody, and um, the person who he was counseling said to him, said, Mark, you know, I really appreciate all you're doing to try to help me. But when we have these conversations, he said, I feel like you're always trying to hit a home run. And all I want to do is play catch. I just want to play catch. I just want to exchange some ideas. I just want to tell you how I'm feeling and I want you to interact with me. I don't want your home runs. Job's friends are trying to hit a home run. They want to show how brilliant they are, how clever they are, and all it's doing is making Job's problems worse. What sufferers want from you is not your answers as much as they want your mercy They want your ears, they want your tears, and they want your presence. And that's what Job would have loved to have had from his friends. Well, let's look at this last thing. Redemption in suffering. Is it possible that redemption could come out of our suffering? And the answer is yes. The conversation between Job and his friends, it goes on, again, chapters 3 to 37, and kind of in the middle of it all, Job says this thing that is, that is really remarkable. It's in chapter 19, and he says this, nope, too far, says this, he says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. I mean, how prophetic is that? (laughs) Because they were prescribed in a book and we're reading them right now in the year 2019. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. So here in the midst of his suffering, Job makes this declaration. I know that my Redeemer lives. This is what he's clinging to. He's not clinging to the advice and counsel of his friends. He's clinging to this hope of a Redeemer. This is in Job. This is in the Old Testament. This is, this is centuries before Jesus comes along. I know that my Redeemer lives. Later on in the book of Job, we get a clue as to who this Redeemer is. See, we are at a great advantage today because we live on the other side of the cross, on the other side of Easter from Job. Job declared this hope in a Redeemer, but there was a lot he didn't know about that Redeemer that you and I do know, because we have the completed canon of Scripture, including the New Testament. But even in Job, we get some clues as to who this Redeemer is and what he's like. And uh, here's what happens. At the end of the book, God um, comes back into the picture, starting in chapter 38, and Um, he has a dialogue with Job and he says to Job, you know, Job, where were you when I created the world? And, you know, there are things that happen in my creation that you don't understand. And what God's point is, is that, is is Job, I'm doing things here that are beyond your ability to grasp and you're going to have to trust me in this. But, you know, isn't it interesting that God never tells Job exactly what's going on, what we read in chapter one, the discussion between Satan and the test that's taking place. Job never learns that. That's hidden from him. And so in many cases, as we go through suffering, I mean, we are not promised any kind of assurance that we're going to know why we're suffering. And it's like the book of Job is telling us that knowing why you suffer is not as important as knowing who you're going to trust in the midst of your suffering. It's not a why question as much as it is a who question. And so what this passage then, or what this book ends up explaining to us is why this God is worthy of trust. So when God is speaking to Job, he also rebukes Job's friends, (laughs) rebukes them appropriately, and uh, he vindicates Job for the things that he has said and the way that he has approached this. And then we have this, chapter 42, verse 8. This is God. He's speaking to those friends, the miserable comforters, and he says this. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So what do we have here? Offer up sacrifice. My servant Job is going to intercede for you foolish people and when he intercedes I'm going to accept that prayer and you're going to be forgiven because Job the innocent sufferer is interceding on your behalf does that remind you of anybody? (laughs) who is the truly innocent sufferer? it's Jesus Christ Job was not sinless Jesus was sinless perfect. No sin, no wrongdoing. And this is what we read in 1 Peter 2. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his mouth. He was sinless, flawless, blameless, and yet he suffered. He was an innocent sufferer. And then who intercedes on our behalf? The answer to that is Jesus also. Jesus Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. In other words, he has gone into the presence of the Father to offer up a prayer to appear in the presence of that Father on your behalf and my behalf. That's what the innocent sufferer is doing, entering into, interceding, mediating, advocating for us. Just as Job gave us this picture of what would happen when Jesus would finally come. Job points, points us to Jesus. That's why Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, the old, whole Old Testament is teaching about me. And that includes even this book of Job. Friends, I, however you're suffering today, you know, I, I don't know why and I can't tell you why you're dealing with the things that, that you're dealing with But one thing I do know about the God of the Bible that sets this God apart from all other conceptions of God is this that this is a God willing to suffer. This is a God willing to enter into the pain and suffering and humiliation of this life. This is a God who suffered for you. This is what we're talking about on Palm Sunday. Actually, this is a big theme of Palm Sunday. Because we're learning about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Do you know why he was entering into Jerusalem voluntarily? So that he could go to his death. And he would say this to his disciples. He'd say, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to treat me shamelessly. They're going to flog me. And they're going to kill me and I'm going anyway, I'm going to Jerusalem, and oh yeah, three days later, I'm going to rise again, (laughs) I'm going to rise again in a glorious bodily resurrection, here's how Tim Keller said it, I think this sums it up really well, if we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross, we still don't know what the answer is. I'm not promising you an answer specifically to why you're suffering, and the Bible doesn't either, but he goes on and says, however, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. God takes our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself in love for you and for me. That doesn't answer all the questions, friends, but it does provide the resources, I believe, for you to continue walking in faith through your suffering. It does provide the resources for you to be able to say, as hard as it might be, it is well with my soul. Maybe that's all you can say. The gospel provides resources for that until the day comes and the day will come when he will come back and wipe away every tear from your eyes and make everything right. Jesus, come quickly. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of wisdom for us as sufferers. Would you please give encouragement to our hearts as we seek to walk in faith before you in Jesus' name.